Our scripture reading is from Genesis 13. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together, and there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, Walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Thanks, Bill. Well, you ready? Uh, last Sunday night, we had our AGM, and uh, those always make me a little nervous because there's the open mic section in the AGM, and you never quite know, right? But every year, I've just been so amazed, just stand back at the end of our, our AGMs in awe of God, because the, the nights have, have turned into these evenings of celebrating the incredible stuff that God has been doing amongst us in a year. We get to hear testimonies, some shared of, of what God did through them and in the life of this place. Um, and we, we, we got to look ahead in faith at, at trusting that God will, 
provide yet again as we step out in faith. And so a really, really cool evening. And there, uh, in preparation for that, I realized that this, is my, this was my fifth AGM as the lead pastor here at Central, which is crazy in my, to me. The time has flown. I've gotten a lot grayer. You know, people telling you, Jason, you look older on stage. People tell me close up, whoa, there's way more gray there than it looks like. From st- so we have an opposite thing going. Either way, the lights are awful, I guess. Because you guys stress me out is why this is all, you know. That's not true. That's not true. It's hereditary. Anyways. But most of my buddies make fun of me about my gray hair and I look at them at like the, 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 the space gathering in their foreheads and I, smi- I smile back. So... I'm good with it. I'm cool with it. I'm getting off point. Uh, In reflecting on these last five years, I've also kind of been thinking, um, man, my job has changed a lot because the church has changed a lot. And um, about six years ago, we had about 600 people that would, would gather here in this building at Central on a Sunday morning. Now we meet almost, we're, we're, we're nearly at four, reaching four campuses and about 1,100 people meet on a Sunday morning at Central. Um, just over 150 kids would typically, uh, zero to 10-year-olds, be in our services and in children's ministry six years ago. Now we have averaging 300 or slightly more on a Sunday morning. It's just incredible what God's been doing and we praise him for that. But just in, in my own role, I've been realizing every Every so often, I need to reevaluate because the church is evolving, and so my role is evolving. And by God's grace, we're going to plant a fourth campus on Easter Sunday this spring in a few weeks, and we're looking to plant a fifth at Harrison. And God is just providing like buildings and people and resources, and it's a lot of fun and also very terrifying uh, to be on this journey with you. But, but I have to constantly remind myself and ask myself, evaluate, okay, what are the priorities of my role? Like there's so many things I can be doing. There are so many demands on me, but what are my priorities? Like what are the things that I must do to be faithful and to be successful in my role as God would have me? But but I'm not unique to that. The same is really true for you, isn't it? In your career, you know what the priorities are in your job right? You know what the priorities are. I must focus on these things because I will have success, right? So you're evaluating and those might ebb and flow for you as well, right? This this is in everything. Even as a, 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 if you're a stay-at-home mom, a parent, for example, you have priorities in your life, a priority of just keep the children alive. Like that, that's high priority, but like how clean the house is, lower priority, right? High priority is feed them, like that they, they may be fed. A lower priority is like get out of your pajamas by 2 p.m. Like, and I'm, I'm not saying that facetiously, like that's a hard, hard job. And you just have to know what the, the high, high priorities are and recognize that success is meeting those. And a lot of stuff, you just kind of have to be like, it's okay. I can't do it. I can't do it all. I can't get to that. The same is true in looking for a spouse. There, there ought to be, and there's typically priorities. I'm not sure if they're always the right priorities, but we all, right? Everybody has these sets of priorities. I'm looking for this. I'm looking for this. I'm look, these are the priorities. These, these must be in the person I would marry. The same is true as you go to buy a home or even a vehicle. There's a, there's a set of priorities. What's the gas mileage like on this? Is it in my price range? Is this house in the, in the neighborhood we would like to? What quality of life will it give us? And how will that affect our bank account when we make the payments on this and all that kind of stuff? You have these priorities of what matters 
most. This week in our text, it's really a case study in priorities. And in the case study, we're going to see um, it, it roll out with two different individuals. Abraham, this man, this father of the faith we've been tracing in our series, As Numerous as the Stars. We're looking at Genesis 12 to 22. We're in the midst of it. And, uh, and also his uh, nephew, Lot, a lesser character in the story, but he appears numerous times. Both of them have unique, separate sets of priorities that affect um, the, the choices they make. It's two different ways of looking at the world. And through both of their lenses, both made the smart decisions according to their own sets of priorities and values. As we will see as the story plays out, Abraham's choice will lead him to blessing and multiplication. And we won't see it much this week, but we will in the weeks to come. Lot's choice leads to destruction. So where last week, midway through chapter 12, we saw famine hit, the tension in the plot was famine came, and we talked about the, the trial of famine in our lives. It comes, and, and how do we respond to that? The, 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 the tension in the plot this morning really centers around not famine, but prosperity. So we're talking kind of this morning about the trial of prosperity. And as I mentioned that, some of you are like, I'll try it. Like, I'll try that. That sounds like a trial I would embrace. But if you read the scriptures and, and, and think about money as you read them, you'll actually find that that's the harder road of faith, is the one with wealth. And so that, that trial, that tension of prosperity and some of the challenges that come with it is, is something of what's going on in our text here this morning. I think the writer in Proverbs had it right when he said, when he prayed, give me neither poverty nor riches. And the reason he prayed that is because he recognized that if he were so poor, it, he might, it might cause him to do something unethical, that, that sin might work itself out in that poverty that he might go and steal. But he also said, Lord, don't give me riches either because then I will be so tempted to forget you, God, thinking I've got all I need. So that's a, that's a beautiful prayer of give me neither poverty nor riches. Abraham, unfortunately, is living in the extremes. He faced famine, and we saw it in the text last week. Now he's facing, like, great prosperity, and he has to navigate those waters. J.D. Greer is an author and a pastor that I admire a lot and that has been influential in my life. And actually, in this Genesis 13, in talking about priorities, I've actually found it really shaping for what I'm going to say this morning. And so I'm really appreciative to him for that. But just to catch you up, just making this transition from Genesis 12 to Genesis 13, here's what's going on. At the end of Genesis 12, after Lot has not listened to God, not sought God out in the midst of famine, but simply made his own plans, ran to Egypt, found himself in a mess where he was telling his wife, say to people, you're my sister, so I don't get killed, so it goes well for me, that kind of thing. Pharaoh had swept her up into his harem thinking that she wasn't married. Big mess. In the midst of taking Sarah as Pharaoh's wife, Pharaoh gives Abraham all kinds of wealth. And at the end of it, by God's miraculous kind of blessing on them where they didn't deserve it, the promises of God remained and he let them out of Egypt, but not with poverty, with the wealth that they had accrued. So now they're cruising back to the land of Canaan, the land that will become Israel that God has promised Abraham. And so in this setting, they're returning with so much wealth that Abraham and Lot are in this land in the Negev region. 
Canaanites, Perizzites, these locals are there as well. And they have so much that there's just not enough space, not enough grazing pasture land for all that they have. So herdsmen are starting to fight with each other. And Abraham approaches Lot and says, listen, if you go left, I'll go right. If you go right, I'll go left. And so let's trace the the priorities of Lot first, and then we'll double back and trace the priorities of Abraham. First, Lot prioritized the riches he could see. Let Let me show you that quick. See, Lot made his choice according to one factor and one factor alone. Which choice will make me the richest? See, Lot doesn't say what he should have said, which is, no, no, Uncle, Uncle Abe, um, God gave you the promise. You're my elder. You're the patriarch of the family. You choose, and I will, I will submit to whatever you desire. He doesn't say that. Abraham, uh, Lot also doesn't seek God's counsel. This is a huge decision. Abraham's saying, Lot, take a pick of the land. And Lot just looks out and picks. He doesn't pursue God, commune with God, seek God out at all, which is fascinating because he's just observed the repercussions of Abraham doing that. Like Lot was down to Egypt as well. Lot's back up here recognizing that, look, it's because Abraham did not seek God and went his own way. They get back to the land. Abraham's, which land do you want? And Lot does the exact same thing that Abraham's just done, not with poverty, but with riches. And it's like, oh, I'll just take that. That, that place looks amazing. And we see warnings all over the text. The writer is putting these warnings in for us to catch. Look at verse 12. Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. See, what happens here is Lot chose the Jordan Valley, renowned for its fertile land. He just looked and he was like, that looks that he saw riches, he saw wealth, he saw comfort. But it was not only renowned for its fertile land, it was notorious for its moral corruption. And this is just the beginning of Lot's downward path that we'll trace over the next few weeks. But it starts here. He first looked towards Sodom. Then he second pitched his tent just outside of Sodom. But we're going to see next week in Genesis chapter 14 that then he's living in Sodom. And by Genesis chapter 19, he's sitting at the gate of the city, which is where the respected leaders of cities would sit. He's in, in the fabric of the city, and he's an influential leader in it. By that time, his daughters have married men from Sodom, and his wife is, has so been gripped by the luxuries of the city life in Sodom that when they are actually retreating and leaving, she looks back longingly at Sodom. She's turned into a pillar of salt. We'll get to that. Look, God sometimes calls us to live in Sodom. So I have to kind of say an aside, it's, you know, Lot had to go somewhere. But he starts just by looking at a, a wealthy place, a place that could produce much for him, and he picks it. And in some cases, we need to go to those, those places. I think good Christians will try and go everywhere there are people so that they can be reached with the gospel. But that was not the motivation of Lot. God sometimes calls us to live in Sodom. That's why we planted a promontory campus, you know? And so... <laughs> Amen. I hear you, brother. No, but look, there's, there's no place without sin, right? And if there were, if you were to show up, you'd mess it all up, right? right? There's no place that sin, we have to live somewhere, yeah. 
But, but Lot's not going like with kingdom of God emphasis. Lot's going because he thinks, man, I'm going to get rich here. I remember when I was 18, I moved to Calgary and I started working in downtown Calgary. And I had come from uh, the Fraser Valley here. And at that time, my whole friend network were all believers. And I went and started working in downtown Calgary. And my friend network became uh, like people who none of them were believers. And foolishly, I kind of thought to myself, well, you know, I'm, I'm going I'm to make a big difference for Jesus here. But really, they so influenced me that they made a big influence on my life. And I made no impact for the kingdom in theirs. I think sometimes we live like Lot, where we choose to live, work, camp right at the border of Sodom. We do this when we, when we choose our jobs sometimes. Sometimes you, you choose a job and you're not pursuing God. It's not an issue of calling. It's not an issue of conviction. It's I can make the most money doing this thing. And that's your only objective. And so you get the job with that in mind because it will give you the most comforts because you look out and say the most wealth is there. Now, it's not wrong to make money. But there's this emphasis in Lot, which is I'm not even going to seek God. I'm just going to seek wealth. And he makes the decision on that premise. Now, this works itself out sometimes when in our homes we decide we're going to have two incomes. And I, I'm all for that. I, I think that's fine. I think that every circumstance is different, and you know what that is for you. But there are circumstances where that's just a given in some homes, some families, where we're bo- both going to work, and we're going to work a lot. And there, again, it's not out of conviction. It's not out of a sense of calling. It's just that there's a standard of life that we want for ourselves, and we both must work all the time to attain it. Because then we get the bigger house, then we get the luxury cars, then we get the fancier trips, and it's the entire motivation for enslaving really selves to such work because it's for the purpose of what it can get you. It's the lot mentality of I'm going to go there, dangers and all, and to the detriment often of the spiritual vitality of the family, to the detriment often to the spiritual vitality of the family, for the nurture of children. It's this... Look, there are instances where that's totally reasonable. It's call. It's this sense of, man, this is what we've got to do in this season. And I'm going to applaud that and say, yes, I get that. I get that. I'm talking about the lot approach to, I'm not going to seek the counsel of God. We just want to live like this. That's lot. Many parents, and I, I, I wrestle with the tension of this. I'm in the mix of all of this. But, but as I look out, I see many parents that appear more concerned with what school their kids go to, what post-secondary school their kids will go to, and what jobs they will get than where they spend their eternity. Pastor Chris talked about this a few weeks ago with kids' sports and stuff. I felt a little convicted. I'm the hockey coach for my son and his hockey team, and it's busy, and there's a lot, and we have, but we have to figure it out. So I'm in that, right? Our, 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 my sons have extracurriculars going on, and we have to walk the tension, as many of you young, young families do, and those of you who have had kids, you remember this, that the schedule can get filled up fast, right? Like the family taxi service, you know, that whole idea of just taking them from one place to the next, to the next, to the next. But here is the reality. I don't think any of our kids are going to turn pro. 
And I doubt many of our kids are going to become doctors or CEOs. But all of our kids will either go to heaven or hell. All of them. Now, there are many legitimate factors in the decisions we make every single day. The big ones, the small ones, the legitimate factors, the weighing, it's like, right, of, of, of why we would do this and why we would do that. All totally legit. But shouldn't the kingdom and mission of God be the weightiest one? Like when it comes to the priorities in Christians' lives, followers of Jesus' lives, what should be the weightiest priority in our lives? Shouldn't it be the mission in the kingdom of God? Shouldn't it be the little things and the big things, the weightiest priority in our lives? Not only did Lot prioritize the riches he could see, Lot prioritized self-interest over generosity. See, Lot didn't think of God and the mission of God first, or if at all. He thought of himself and what he could accumulate for himself first. Full stop. Lot is thinking of one person here, that's himself. In other words, Lot is the opposite of a generous heart. Verse 10 tells us that Lot lifted up his eyes. It's another warning sign. It's another flag in the text. Like, watch out, careful. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the Jordan Valley was like the garden of the Lord. We're talking about Eden at the beginning of the scriptures, Genesis 1 and 2. Right? Perfection. Adam and Eve walking in the garden, chatting with God. All is perfect. And Lot sees from the hill that he is on and he looks out at the land and he sees that one particular area looks like the garden paradise. And he's like, I choose that. Why did he choose it? I think he, could ha- he, he, he really believed that he could have paradise on earth, on earth. He looked with his eyes and thought that will be the best. But here's the problem with thinking that a land looks like the garden of the Lord. Sin originated in the garden. (laughs) Like that's where sin originated. I think he's thinking that's like that blissful paradise. I choose that and that's how it'll go for me. No, a crooked heart enters the land and it's sinful. It's where sin originated. He thought he could get paradise on earth, that he would be fully satisfied if he could have the material wealth that the garden of the Lord type of place could give him. It says also in verse 10, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was like the land of Egypt. Now we said this last week, in the Old Testament, going down to Egypt is frequently the alternative to trusting in God. So Lot trusted that peace, security, happiness, paradise, heaven on earth could be attained by choosing the right land. It's fertile And it's right beside a happening city. This is going to be perfect for me. And he was so wrong. Atheism atheism is is just really the, 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 the belief that there is no God. And therefore no afterlife. So the way that that typically works itself out is, man, you only got one life, right? This is all there is, so whoop it up. Make the most of it. With that comes the, 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 the ideal that, that, that we should pursue personal pleasure at all costs and reject all suffering, all hardship, all, all, all selflessness, any lack. 
because that would actually infringe on my joy, on my pleasure. And so I must pursue for myself all the pleasures that the world can offer. And if you just took a, take a to wide gaze at society at large, you will see all that the world believes it has to offer so that you can whoop it up and make the most of this life, the only life, the only thing you've got, and then you die. The problem is, is that many Christians live like practical atheists. As if, man, this is all there is. As if this is all there is. So yes, I will be full of self-interest because, man, this is all I've got. Living like practical atheists, when it comes to our possessions, when it comes to our choices for what we personally can get in our own fulfillment, it's like, yeah, that will go better for me. I choose that with no mindset at all for the grander picture or for others. Just living for self-interest. Okay, that's Lot. Let's look in at Abraham. What, what do we see Abraham do in our text this morning? We see that Abraham prioritized the kingdom of God. But before we really get into it, I just want us to look right off the bat in chapter 13 at what happens. Something so redemptive and beautiful happens. Like Abraham just blew it in Egypt. He was faced with a trial and he tripped up hard. That's kind of where we left it last week. He made a huge mess. Can you imagine the trip back with his wife, Sarah, to Canaan? Say you're my sister, so it'll go well for me. I don't want to die. Like, can you like, imagine like, the horror of that scenario and how quiet that trip back to the land that God had promised them in the first place would have been? But I love what Abraham does with that. Like, man, he knows he screwed up bad. And he does what he should do. He retraced his steps and went right back to the altar that he had made before at Bethel, right? That house of God. He went back to that place and he sought God. Like, man, we just sang about our sins are great, but his mercy's greater. Like we just sang about that. Like this is the Christian life. I sin, you sin, we trip up hard. What do you do then? How do we not live with shame and blame in our lives? You know what we do? We retrace our steps to the beginning of our faith when we first believe. And what is that? It's, man, we just, we, we go to the altar, figuratively speaking. We, we just go to Christ. We go to Jesus and we repent of our sin and we, and we replace our faith in God. Jesus, I'm just reminded again through my sin about where my plans get me. Forgive me, please. Set me back on your course for me, Jesus, right? And that's exactly what Abraham does. And that's exactly what's afforded to us in the Christian life. Retrace our steps, go back to the altar, lay our lives down before him, repent, know that we're forgiven, walk away without shame, without blame, because Jesus bore the burden on his back on the cross for us. And we move forward in faith, restored. That's exactly what he does at the beginning of chapter three or 13. That's what he does. In, at the end of chapter 12, no altars, just fear. Just doubt of God. Beginning of chapter 13, he goes to the altar, return to the place of faith and worship. That's what we are to do when we fail. So Abraham now, having done that corrective work, that forgiveness, that grace, met Jesus. Abraham is again living really just in that between the promise and fulfillment. He's living in that time between promise and fulfillment. We as Christians live in the time in between promise and really culmination fulfillment. 
What's required in living in that? Yes, the promises of God have been given to Abraham. You will have this land. You will possess it. You will have descendants like crazy. But, but those things haven't really happened yet. So where are you supposed to live? Well, you're supposed to live in faith. In the tension and live in faith. Faith that God will take care of him and not abandon him. So Abraham, in our text this morning, is believing God, following God, living for God. He's prioritizing the kingdom of God as he waits for the promised fulfillment. And that's our call as well. Everything is not right in the world. Everything is not as it should be. Everything is not yet made new. We live in the tension between promise and fulfillment And yet we also live with the promises of God and the guarantee of those promises. You know what it is for the believer? It's the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says, In Jesus you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. We, like Abraham, are waiting for the possession of the promises of God for our lives for all eternity. And in the midst of it, we have a guarantee, a seal, which is the, the, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. Abraham has communed with God and he's living for God. And that's why he's able to approach Lot open-handed and say, man, which way do you want to go? Because Abraham has prioritized the kingdom of God. Secondly, Abraham prioritized generosity over self-interest. Um, there was a, uh, in the 19th century, a man named George Mueller. He uh, was a, an evangelist and the director of the Ashley Down Orphanage in Bristol, England. He cared for over 10,000 orphaned children in his life. He also established 117 schools, which offered Christian education to over 120,000 children, many of them being orphaned children or children in poverty. And he was often accused of lifting the poor children above their station in life because he was trying to give them such quality care, love, education. And George Mueller was not a wealthy man. He just believed that as he went about kingdom work, that God was going to provide. He just spent his life that way. And people around him were like, oh, well... We can't have faith like George Mueller. He's a special case. And we, we, we look in at the story of Abraham and we're the same. We're like, well, that's Abraham. Like he's a special case. And yes, he's a father of the faith that we are not, right? We are recipients of the promise. Yes, but we're not Abraham. And people would be like, and we're not George Mueller. So we can't live like that. And in response to such um, response, well, he responded this way when he wrote, my dear Christian reader, Will you not try this way? Will you not know for yourself the preciousness and the happiness of this way of casting all your cares and burdens and necessities upon God? This way is as open to you as to me. Everyone is invited and commanded to trust in the Lord, to trust in him with all his heart and to cast his burden upon him and call to him upon Call upon him in the day of trouble. Will you not do this? My dear brethren in Christ, I long that you may do so. I desire that you may taste the sweetness of that state of heart in which, while surrounded by difficulties and necessities, you can yet be at peace because you know that the living God, your Father in heaven, cares for you. 
George Mueller simply put his faith in God and went about the mission of God. And as he did, the kingdom of God was made manifest through his ministry and him and the staff and the children were constantly in awe of and their faith was built up in God because they trusted in faith that he would provide. And over and over and over again, he did. This is precisely what Abraham is learning in this text. God is making him rich promises and he's believing God. And so he's able to be a generous man. Abraham prioritized generosity over self-interest. In reading this text, if there's a tag-along, who is the tag-along? It's Lot. He's, he's Abraham's nephew. Why is he even there? Who invited him? I'm not sure. He just, he just keeps mentioning through the story and Lot and his nephew Lot. Like he's just tagging along and now he's actually getting rich in the process. And Abraham, Abraham, this, this man of promise, the uncle in the family, the leader. Like in this story, who should get the pick of the land? Of course, it's Abraham. But Abraham has been communing with God. He's walking with God. He's believing the promises of God. And when there's an issue going on and, and he's seeking peace, he's able to do it in a sacrificial way and actually look at Lot and say, hey, listen, if you go left, I'll go right. If you go right, I'll go left. Have at her. Where do you want to go? And he's good with it. He's open-handed with it. See, Abraham had wealth, but his wealth didn't have him. You know what I mean? Abraham had wealth, but his wealth didn't have him. Not the case with Lot. Lot's wealth had him. And it totally, totally changed the priorities in the two men. Abraham could be generous with the land because he knew that God would provide one of the things that blows me away about you, Central, is um, the heart for adoption and fostering that exists in this place. Uh, it's, uh, it's incredible. It's incredible. There are so many children that have been adopted into loving families here, and I love it. There's so many children that have been fostered and are being fostered and are part of our church family in this season, in which, ah. Oh, I'm convicted and encouraged by you. Sometimes I chat with some of you about what you're doing with your lives and I'm like, am I even a Christian? <laughs> the way you guys are living for God just like blows me away. Um, recently, a new little foster baby came into the church family and will be here for a while. We'll see how long. And so many people are, have been gushing over this little one, right? It's such a cute little baby. And uh, between services, I was just like tickling her little foot. So cute. My boys are gangly and weird now. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's adorable. There's no attitude yet. Well, I guess there's the screaming, but all of that. Just amazing. Just amazing what you're doing here. And this, with this one little young baby that's come around, so many people have gathered around and they've said to these foster parents, like, I don't know how you do it. One woman even said, I could not do what you do. And fair enough. She said, I could not do what you do because my heart would break. My heart would break when I'd have to give her back. And this foster mom in our church said, that's exactly what my prayer is. That my heart would break. Because then I'll know I've loved her well. 
How do you do that? There's something about the promises of God when they're not just intellectual or they're not just some story that you think is far off and distant and not even believable, but when the promises of God have sunk through your mind, you've worked them through into your heart, taken root, and you actually trust in the promises of God. That you can look out at a fractured world and say, man, I can bless. I can bless in the midst of this and I'll be okay because there's someone who will see me all the way through. See, we follow a savior who prioritized generosity to the point where he gave all of himself. And when you believe in that, and it begins to make a Christ-likeness into you, you become close-handed on Jesus and open-handed with your life and your stuff. He just works that through. And the Spirit loves to do that in you as you release your life into his priorities. So we've talked about Lot. We've talked about Abraham. I've done my crying thing. We can all move on. Tick the box. I just have a question for you. Whose priorities better exemplify your approach to life? Lot's or Abraham's? Whose priorities better exemplify your approach to life? Lots are Abraham's. There's some diagnostic questions I guess we could ask to help us work that through. And as I say them to you, as I preach them to you, I, I've preached them to myself all week long, and you need to always know that. But a diagnostic question we can ask is, what's first and weightiest in your decisions? The big decisions. The little decisions. What's first and weightiest? The kingdom of God, the mission of God? Or is the, the riches that you see, that you can pursue, that you think you can attain, you choose it, you choose it, you choose it. Here's the truth. Souls are valuable. The mission is is urgent, and Jesus is glorious, and that's why we're here. It's the only reason why we're here. Look, so I, I, just want, I want to invite you, make wise choices with work, with school, with parenting, with where you live, with what you drive, in everything. And you will do that by going back to Bethel over and over and over again, just coming to God in prayer, in the big decisions, in the little decisions, bringing it to God. Make me wise, Lord. I want you to have the weightiest place in this decision, God. I want to invite you to consider the mission of Jesus as the weightiest priority of your lives. I'll say it again. I want you to consider, and I know many of you do this and you live this way better than I do, but I invite you to consider the mission of Jesus as the weightiest priority of your lives. Another diagnostic question. Does God get the first and best of all you receive? I mean, here's Abraham, and he has promised much, but he's willing to just look over at Lot and say, have your pick. Later in chapter 14, he's going to have a, a victory of, of sorts. And he's going to give an offering to Melchizedek, this priest. Why? Because he wants to give the first and best. 
does God get the first and best of all you receive? See, Abraham knew that he had been blessed in order to be a blessing. So he was able to hold tightly to God and loosely to everything else. Heard the story of a pastor who was meeting with a couple who were with him and just saying, look, we just, we're, we just don't feel like we can give. We just don't feel like we can support the, 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 the mission of the church that we're on together. We just don't feel like that we can contribute to it. The pastor was just speaking with them and just saying, okay, like talking about it and saying, look, just talk with each other and try and figure out what would giving your first and best look like? Like, what would that look like for you? And they, they talked with each other a little bit and the, the couple decided, okay, well, I think this amount of money would be, kind of be our first and best, what we feel like we, what would be our first and best. And he said, why don't you write that down in a check and give it to me? And then I'll take that check and I'll put it in my desk drawer. And at the end of the month, if you feel like we can't cash that check, there's no money left, I'll rip it up, give it back. What do you think? Can you do that? They looked at each other and like, yeah, yeah, I think we can do that. And he looked back at them and said, shame on you. Why do you trust me, your pastor, more than you trust God? God's the one who said, I, I take care of the lilies, the flowers in the field. I'll take care of you as you seek the kingdom. He's the one who said, like, I, I watch out for all the birds. Like, I'll watch out for you, my child. Why do you, why do you trust anything less than God in your life? What is keeping you from giving your first and best to God? Now, in John Piper, in his incredible book, Desiring God, he wrote, God has made us to be conduits of his grace. Here's the idea. What he's saying is that we are conduits. We, we have conduits around the building. In fact, there's up, they're up there somewhere. Where are they? Going down? I don't know, but there's conduits that run cables, speaker wire, like from our stage to our booth. And for the cameras there, a conduit runs the cables up to the booth, that kind of thing. A conduit is simply, essentially a tube, and, and you can run things through it. And so what he's saying is that we are conduits of God's grace, meaning God pours out blessing upon us, his children, and we are merely the conduits, and the, the, the blessing runs through us, in order to bless other people. We are, as his children, the conduits from his blessing to blessing others. That's what we are. We are conduits of his grace, he writes. And he goes on to say, the danger is thinking the conduit should be lined with gold. It shouldn't. Copper will do. Copper will do. See, we get tripped up when we think, man, God has blessed me so richly. I'm gonna hunker down and build my estate. Done. Money in, no money out. God has blessed me. This is awesome. Here we go. Let's see what I can do with all this. For me. It's precisely backwards to, to, to God's mission in the world, which is your conduits of my grace. I bless you so that you can pour out my blessing upon others that they may know you. So my question is, does God get the first and best of all you receive? I just want to invite you to give your first and best to God, to give your first and best to God. 
Jesus said in Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. This is the kind of promise that we need as we step out with lives of faith. I'm trusting you, God. I'm going to live as a conduit. I'm going to be a a blessing to others and I'm going to pour out the blessing you've entrusted to me onto others. My wife is better at this than me. She'll be like, oh, I gave this thing away to these people. I'm like, what? I love that thing. Be like, hey, I'm giving this food to them. I'm like, I'm hungry. I was going to eat that. Right? She'll give some money to somebody who's like, I was going to spend that. Like, that's just my, that's my MO. That's my basic mode. It's always a challenge. It's always, and I, I love that she challenges me forcefully to do that, you know? So what a blessing. What a blessing. But this is what God wants to work in us, is he wants us to live in that precarious place of faith. He's inviting our whole church to do it. But that has to work itself down to it calling every single one of us to do that. That's how we work as a, as a body. Is every part has to be in on this project of seeking God first and his kingdom. And then everything else will be added. What does that mean? That he will come along as we pour our lives out for the kingdom and meet all our needs. That's what he says. That's what he promises. That is a good, good truth. But how is it possible How is it possible to go from um, prioritizing the riches we can see to prioritizing the kingdom of God? How can we go from this self-interest that's just ingrained in us into selflessness? How is that possible? Well, it's that resurrection power taking root in our lives, right? It's the fruit of the spirit working itself through, and it's the fruit of gospel implications that we truly do have enough if we have Jesus. Right? We sing that song. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. What if every single one of us believed that in this room? Take all this world, but give me Jesus. What if we all believed that? The very end of this chapter, God, as Lot goes off and takes this primo land that's there, God standing on, or Abraham standing on a hill and God speaks to him and says, look north. He looks as far as he can see north. Look south, look east, look west. Everything you see will be yours, will be your descendants. Look down in the dust. As these particles of dust can't be counted, it's gonna be like crazy the amount of descendants you will have. Later, he's gonna say to Abraham, look up at the stars, Your descendants will be as numerous as the stars. Do you hear the kinds of promises of God that he brings as we step out into kingdom ministry, kingdom life, living lives for the sake of the kingdom that we'll be able to essentially like Abraham look up and be reminded of the promises of God. Look down and be reminded of the promises of God. Look out and be reminded of the promises of God and they are sure and they are true and we are merely called to step out in faith and trust him to have a firm grip on the gospel, on Jesus, and a loose grip on everything else. And as we cling to Jesus, love Jesus, are reminded of who Jesus is in our lives, it, it naturally loosens our grip from Sodom to the kingdom of Jesus. What an incredible, incredible reality. Can I encourage you, prioritize the kingdom and mission of God. Let's pray together. Jesus, that's, that's my prayer for me. That's the prayer I need, to, I need to keep praying. Lord, I have so much sin that I need to continue to confess and lay down, to repent of, 
to turn from. I, I, I sing the song when we sing it in church. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. But Lord, I, I, I want that to be true. I ask that for me. I ask that for us. Lord, make us more and more and more into the image of your son. Lord, I pray that you would help us prioritize the kingdom and mission of God. Your work in the world. Lord, would you make us conduits of your grace? May your kingdom come. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>